Canadian content space for cannibal conversations. I'm Jocelyn. And I'm Zachary. We're here today to talk about cannibal films. So let's talk a little bit, this is our first episode, let's talk a little bit about where our project comes from. Recently, we saw in theaters Luca Gordonino's Bones and All. We actually saw it twice in theaters. Repeat viewings. Yeah. um, (laughs) It's a really fun, beautiful film, and um, as a scholar of pop culture, that's a little bit of my background, we can get into that later if we want, I'm really interested in writing about it, but I wasn't really sure to begin. So what we decided to do is embark on a bit of a deep dive in a little six-episode mini-series into cannibal figures in um, uh, cannibal figures in popular American films. Yes, and this somewhat uh, avoids going into for the time being anyway too much of like exploitation slasher kind of horror films about cannibals we're looking more at cannibals as they appear in say a more mainstream film that is maybe interesting looking at different varieties of depictions of the cannibals in a variety of different genres and films yeah so let's talk about our our six films that we have set out we kind of wanted to look at the figure of the cannibal in films that are not necessarily just about cannibalism. So exactly, exactly what you were saying. So um, we're not, yeah, not necessarily, that's not necessarily the central theme, but where we see cannibalism occurring. Um, And we're going to go chronologically and I'm going to list them backwards. So um, because I picked the three more contemporary films and Zachary, you picked the three kind of earlier films. So let's, we'll start with uh, Bones and All, list our little catalog backwards, and then introduce the film we're going to talk about today. So our last episode, episode six, is going to be on the most recent film, Bones and All. Um, before that, oh no, I'm forgetting my... So second to last is going to be um, Darren Aronofsky's Mother, which has just a very, very brief... Um, a very brief overall scene of cannibalism in it. Our... Third to last episode is going to be Jennifer's Body, which I had forgotten um, had cannibalism in it until I was reminded recently, actually thinking about this project. And then, Zachary, what are our first three going to be? And then, in, again, reverse chronological order, for the first three, which we are listing as the final three, we're going to watch Julie Taymor's Titus, which uh, is her adaptation of Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus, which you may or may not know ends in a uh, cannibal scene. Uh, We're going to watch Alive, which is, I think, the only picture in our initial six that is explicitly based on a true story that involves cannibalism. And then our first and today's film will be Silence of the Lambs, which is perhaps... uh, in a lot of ways, the most notorious film on the list. Yeah, so before we get into the depths of Sons of the Lambs, I want to just briefly, briefly kind of content note some stuff. Um, we want to kind of acknowledge that there is some pretty bad transphobia in this film. 
Uh, we're mostly not going to talk about the character of Buffalo Bill. We will talk about the character of Buffalo Bill, um, unpack some of the transphobia um, in the film, but we're not going to do that until the end of the episode because that's not really the figure we're interested in. Um, but we don't want to just ignore it and ignore it as, or pretend that it's not a really problematic representation. When we get there, we will flag it. We'll say, hey, this is the section where we're talking about the problematic stuff. Um, because folks might be interested in the cannibalism conversation without necessarily being interested in wanting to hear about, about that representation. Um, again, these six films are chosen uh, for a number of reasons. We think there are six really different kinds of representations of cannibalism, and they all have like a different kind of staying power. And probably Silence of the Lambs is the one that has like the most cultural staying power, I think. So, Zachary, if you want to introduce that, I know you have some, some interesting thoughts about that film. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, one of the first things that I think a lot of people think about when they mention Silence of the Lambs, like there's the iconic images that uh, even in the few short decades since its release have really embedded themselves in popular culture. It's like uh, image of Hannibal Lecter and his mask and restraints is one that you see parodied a lot. You see um, you see it in a lot of homages, you see it kind of blatantly ripped off in other sort of body horror films that are looking at that kind of paraphernalia. Um, but Hannibal Lecter being a cannibal is always one of the first things people think about. Um, and what we were surprised at, I was surprised to find watching it in 2022, is uh, not only the absence of any real cannibalism on screen as far as we see him bite some people but as far as actual consuming uh, it's really only referred back to at odd times in the film and sometimes even mostly in uh scenes that are supposed to be darkly comic it actually feels like such a major aspect of this character in the popular imagination but one that doesn't factor in a terrible amount uh into the character in Silence of the Lambs as as it stands as the Jonathan Demme film, perhaps maybe more so in the Thomas Harris novel. But it's interesting to note, too, that this is one of the rare instances where, uh, as far as the, the modern Hannibal films with uh, Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter, we start in the middle of the trilogy here. Red Dragon had been adapted years earlier as Manhunter with Brian Cox as Hannibal Lecter, but here, instead of starting with a remake of Red Dragon and moving to Silence of the Lambs, uh, Jonathan Demme chose to start with Silence of the Lambs and recast everyone. There's no connection between this and Manhunter. Um, so it's interesting as well that we jump right into this story and we're informed of Lecter's cannibalism right as soon as the characters mentioned uh, Clarice Starling's response to being assigned uh, the project of talking with Lecter, her response is, oh, Hannibal the cannibal. Uh, and we kind of, that sets the scene, sets the stage for what I had anticipated would be a lot more exploration of his cannibalism. And that's how I remembered the film, having watched it in high school, but uh, not really the way it, uh, it plays out when you watch it now. Yeah, so I'm 
touch on a couple of things before we we get into the weeds. So yeah, we're jumping off in the middle of this trilogy. It's kind of a weird place to start. We get this notorious cannibal, as you say, Zachary, but not really an exploration of cannibalism. Like that's sort of his like, defining character feature, even more so than um, being this brilliant kind of uh, psychologist. Uh, I think he's a psychologist. Now I'm in a psychiatrist. Psychiatrist. Yeah, there we go. Um, and then we also right, we get this figure who's famous for being a cannibal. Isn't doesn't really do that. We don't get a deep exploration of of that, even as part of his character, it kind of just gets, like, stuck to him as a name, and we'll talk about how the film plays with that in certain scenes and certain tensions, um, but then this character, part of the reason we wanted to talk about this film, sort of despite some of its, um, the problematic stuff that we'll, we'll talk about at the end, is that this same character goes on to be kind of a public fascination, right, so we get, um, the next film in the sequence, which is, is just called Hannibal. Yeah. Um, that comes out in, oh goodness, I was in high school. 98, I want to say, and what? Silence of the Lambs is like 91. Yeah, I feel like it was like 2004 or something, but I, I think that's probably wrong. Cause I, if, I would say at the latest it's 2001 maybe, but nearly a decade apart, it, it felt like a film that was never going to get made for sure that the cast and the creators had moved on. Right, and then many years later, we get um, the television show Hannibal, which is still the same fascination with the same character. So what is that about? I think that's an important part of kind of why we're interested in the film. Uh, let's just summarize the plot really, really briefly. So for folks who may not have seen the film, uh, may not have rewatched it before before listening to the episode, may have seen it a number of years ago, um, uh, what happens? Okay, so the film opens. We have we meet Clarice Starling. Uh, she is moving up rapidly within the FBI, the CIA, a government agency. I think it's I think it's the FBI. Yeah, but criminal uh, law enforcement she's on a, she's a high a level. Cop. She's yeah. A, a very smart, very fancy, um, in some ways very well resourced. The department that she works for is a very well resourced, but she is a cop. Yes, we see a lot of fancy office space, training facilities, and one thing that the film establishes from the very beginning, and if you don't catch it the first five times they do it, they will do it many, many times throughout the film, is Clarice is in a man's world, and we get all kinds of shots of her there's one at the very beginning, which is clever. She's in an elevator full of very tall men. They all look down at her. She smiles up at them. She's a fish out of water, but she's excelling, and she's challenging the patriarchy of this uh, large, complex police division. And because she's a woman and seemingly one of the only women in the force, she's selected to interview Hannibal Lecter, who we've explored a little bit as a Former psychiatrist, now in a criminal mental institution under lock and key for mass murder, serial killer. Uh, and the idea is that Clarice will interview Lecter, get to know him, get inside his head, and Lecter may be able to identify the identity of a new serial killer who is killing women uh, across the Midwest, I believe, uh, who's been dubbed in the newspapers Buffalo Bill is the this killer's nom de plume. 
Yeah, and some of the central themes that we'll see, so we see Clarice as a woman in a man's world. Um, some of, this is one of the reasons the film has been dubbed. I don't know if people call it a feminist project. There's certainly a message is attempted in the film about sort of women's empowerment. Um, it's a pretty second wavy, like I'm a little bit as a scholar critical of, of course, that of that message in particular ways, as when we get to the ending section for me, um, the critiques, the thing that the film is trying to do, um, feel kind of weirdly prescient and that they feel very in line with some of like the scary stuff that's happening with turfy discourse uh, but we'll get into that a little bit later one is so that's one of the central themes is uh Clarice being a woman in a man's world um one of the other central themes will be that Clarice is kind of a pawn to her government and her employer she's not um, um she doesn't know when she goes in to talk to Hannibal that there is a link to the Buffalo Bill case at all. She believes that she's going in, you know, maybe she has some kind of new spin. Maybe she can help them get a psychological profile on Hannibal Lecter, who is himself um, a serial killer and serial cannibal. So um, and she kind of leverages one of the things that she does is she takes that kind of structure around her of being a pawn, of being set out to act in particular ways without having all the information, and she eventually, um, she's kind of characteristics of her. She's whip smart, and she's kind of fiery, um, and she, once she realizes what's happening to her, she starts um, kind of putting the same framework around Hannibal Lecter and treating him the same way as she's being treated in the system. And this leads to, I think, the part of the film that we're really interested in, which is the relationship between Clarice and Lecter. Um, Zach, do you want to... Yeah, you, there's almost a sense in which, um, really, like, I, at the risk of overstating it, that they are indeed kindred spirits. They are intellectual, if not equals. They're certainly a match for one another. Um, they are able... They recognize common enemies, which you can kind of filter all those common enemies under one umbrella of being this patriarchal institution that has undermined them both in, in different ways. Lecter just through law and order um, and, and seeming punishment for his crimes and Clarice through, through gender inequality and her supervisors, for instance, like constantly kind of, they will compliment her, promote her, and then you'll find out that they've put her into a, a space without giving her all the information. There's another scene in which she's asked to leave the room uh, under the auspices that they're going to be discussing bloody murder, and this would be, you know, have some decency, excuse the woman from this conversation. So both Lecter and Clarice start to notice that they can use other people's preconceptions of themselves to manipulate the system in a certain, in certain ways that are advantageous to them. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that, um, that is common for Clarice. So in the, in the scene, right, they're going to investigate a murder. Uh, we kind of get the sense that it's sort of a rural kind of backwoodsy place. Her supervisor, 
um, she takes him to task for it, right? She, yeah. she says, like, really? And he says, oh, they just wouldn't have talked in front of you. I had to send you out. Like, it's the only way to make them feel comfortable. Um, why does it matter anyway? Like, I know that you're, you're smart, and, like, I understand that. And her answer is, um, uh, it matters because people look to you um, on how to act. Um, and we also see that, right, her relationship with her boss is kind of the relationship. It's almost... Um, in that kind of intimacy that we'll get into a little bit more deeply in just a minute and the intimacy in her, um, relationship with Lecter, which is super strange and interesting and is really the heart of the film, right? Um, it is weirdly a talking heads film for most of it, although it's very kind of gripping and, um, intense all the same. There's kind of one big, long, extended action-y sequence, um, at the end, but most of the film is kind of information collecting, data collection. Um, it kind of feels like those are two different relationships that she has with these powerful men, and her boss, again, uses her as a pawn. Um, he seems to be the only... Um, another thematic that we'll see is not just that she, I'm, I'm coming back. I know I'm not, I'm not just losing my point. Um, what another thematic we see is that she's not just a woman in a man's world, but like men are dangerous to her. Like all men seem to be a risk to her. They look at her, um, as a sexual object. The camera shows men in various contexts, including her coworkers, but also, um, uh, men that she meets that are not necessarily in the same kind of line of work as her, uh, kind of looking her up and down. Lecter at one point says something like, you can see the way men carve you up with their eyes. Um, and her boss, right, seems to be kind of like a safe person for her right up until, when is it that it becomes clear that uh, is it is it in the there's end? doubts being planted in the audience um while they're also being planted in Clarice I think in their first meeting Lecter uh posits the idea to her that her boss is maybe trying to sleep with her um he acknowledges that she's the first woman that this particular I forget his name it's agent something rather mm-hmm. but that he's um it's the first time he's ever sent a woman to talk to Lecter, and Lecter suspects that for all her talents and ability, perhaps to her boss, she's still seen as a potential sexual conquest. But I think it's until he asks her to leave the room at... Uh, it's interesting, because it's a scene that would normally, in a crime film like this, be set in a morgue, but it's actually set in a funeral home, and they're examining the body in kind of a backwoodsy community at the funeral itself. And that's where she's asked to uh, leave the room so the that her boss can talk to uh, the other investigators. And that seems to be where the, the doubts really start to come into her mind that she's maybe taken as less than an equal by her, uh, by her boss. Yeah. And there's a, um, uh, a scene toward the end of the film where he shakes her hand and he says something kind of ambiguous where the invitation, is... he asks what she's doing after the yeah. ceremony and she, uh, you can see, like, the flash of alarm in her eye, which is possibly a flash of realization. The film it is... That scene in particular is nicely um, ambiguous in that way. Yeah, and, and one of the things that's that's interesting about the relationship with Lecter is that he seems interested in her predominantly as an intellectual interlocutor. 
um, even the closing line of the film, or I don't, is it the closing line? In one of the closing scenes when he calls, uh, my memory before rewatching it to record was that he calls her in her home, which I think happens in the next, we were discussing this earlier. I it very, I mean, by the time we get to the second one, their relationship is so far advanced, um, it's quite possible. <laughs> yeah, but, but my memory was that she's at home alone and he calls her in her home. Um, and there's that kind of, you know, he's always, he's, he is some kind of super genius who's always like six steps ahead of everyone, knows where she lives. And I mean, I'm sure her numbers listed in the phone book, but, um, but he calls the FBI somehow or like in this, it's very funny. She yeah. picks up a phone in this like ceremonial hall where they're celebrating that they found the serial killer, um, with cake and awards and all of those things. Um, and he says, uh, Electra says to her, like, basically I'm not a danger to you because the world is so much more interesting with you in it. Um, and he seems to be in this man's world, right? There's no possibility in the world of the film of her getting a real affirmation from a woman, mm-hmm. right? She's, she is not in a position to give affirmations to anyone. She's only looking up up to men for her um, understanding of her place in uh, in this world of of um, policing and like crime um, crime detecting. I don't know what you would <laughs> crime analysis. Crime analysis, yeah. Profile um, building, which there's a lot of in the film. You would think that that's maybe a department unto itself. Right, but she is looking up to all these men around her in various places, and it's Hannibal who both treats her kind of legitimately as an interlocutor, although that's not, it's not that that's not a troubled relationship, which I think we should talk about mm-hmm. about now, but then it's also Hannibal who, um, yeah, who says, like, the world is better with you in it, which is this huge affirmation and this strange way of saying, um, essentially, I'm not going, like, I could, but I'm not going to eat you. <laughs> yeah, and it comes with an appeasement, because he says that, and then he says, I hope you'll do the same for me, and she says, I can't make that promise that if the chance comes to bring you to justice, I might. Uh, as far as the final line in the film, I just want to quickly interject yeah, before please. I forget, is they have that conversation, and then, like all the dark comedy in the film, it ends with a cannibal joke. Um, he says, I'm about to have an old friend for dinner. And we see him watching the head of the psychiatric institution who torments him while he's in prison, getting off an airplane. And Hannibal has not only figured out the phone number for the FBI building, he's figured out where his old uh, jail keep is is getting off a plane. But um, the, as far as the relationship between Clarice and Hannibal, it's interesting how it's very paradoxical because Hannibal is constantly giving her credit in a very genuine complimentary way, which she's not getting from her other peers, but he's still constantly using that praise to manipulate her um, into getting him further uh, audiences and further ear time with people within the FBI and the government who have the ability to initially move him to a lower security prison where he'll have more privileges and eventually it all snowballs into him escaping. So it's, it's a, like a cat and mouse game within a cat and mouse game where 
he and Clarice are always kind of, even when they seem to be completely at odds, there's a bit of complicity between them. And even when they're cooperating with one another, one is trying to outdo the other. Would you say that that is accurate? Yeah, I think that, I think that's absolutely right. Although I don't think that that's true right at the beginning, right? At the beginning, he's kind of, um, let's talk about, let's talk about him as a character, right? So he is this, um, we, we laughed a lot when we were watching the film together because we were like, this is a particular kind of cultural idea of what a super genius is. He is a PhD. He affluent, but he doesn't seem to own things that rich people are supposed to own, like pickup trucks or condo <laughs> buildings. He likes perfumes and fancy clothing and like veal cutlets. And and that's part of what like right is kind of um it's kind of threatening about him. This is a film that is that is in a franchise that is like kind of scared of queer people. Um, Tremendously, I think, yeah. Yeah, and it's also so. Um, and this was something I didn't know sitting down too. So if you uh, if you continue to listen to our cannibal conversations, you will notice really quickly that uh, my memory for details is really bad. And like she's in, like she's a fancy police, and Zachary has a really really strong memory for um, for details. But um, Zachary, what was At one times. of the <laughs> one of the big details you filled me in on before we were watching it about? Uh, about Hannibal. Yeah, that he's explicitly bisexual in, uh, by the time we get to the second Hannibal movie. Uh, but it's not, it's barely broached upon at all in this film. Yeah, and it, it's something that the film, like, because the, the books exist, all of them, right? Like, it's, it's, it's in the... the yeah, so we should say this, it is like a living text long before we get even to the 80s version of Red Dragon, which I, as I mentioned, is Manhunter, uh, which also in that film, which is not a film that's interested in sexuality the way the Silence of the Lambs and the and Hannibal and the later Red Dragon film are, but uh, we have this character on screen who, on paper, has had his bisexuality explored a fair deal, and in this film we get certain I don't even know what you would call them like flamboyant kind of, like he reads as queer in a way that is very nuanced at times but sometimes somewhat vulgar um and which maybe is also typical of that early 90s kind of taboo breaking in terms of what we're going to show in a mainstream hollywood film and what we're not they seem he feels very caught uh, hannibal as a character that is and and as hopkins performs him feels very caught between places at times um but it's it's not a um, his sexuality is not spelled out in that way, and there are times he's explicitly uh, making very sexually charged comments toward Clarice. So, in, in which case, if you didn't know any better, or maybe a less astute viewer would maybe have little trouble reading him as heteronormative. Yeah, and I think that gets really bound up in this other kind of. Fear in the film, right? Which is like, I don't try to think of like, what is this film afraid of? It's afraid of like, what what is the right? Because like horror movies are always exploring for us something that is like a haunting force for us, whether it's an existential thing, whether it's 
um, a social cultural thing. Often there's things bound up together. And so it's gender outliers is one of the things that we're, we're afraid of. And it's also this kind of like elite, hard to pin down masculinity, right? It's the 80s and 90s in America. And we have this um, PhD, this as esthete, um, someone with, we could describe as like a European sensibility or a film's kind of broad. He's, he's worldly. Yeah. yeah. Um, he likes classical music and poetry. We see him enjoying both. Uh, and it's kind of like, so what, what does this, this music with no words and these, these poems, like what do they do to people? You know, do they, it turns them into people like Hannibal maybe. And that's maybe why Clarice can talk to him, but uh, is repulsed by things that he finds very tantalizing. Yeah. And, and it's really interesting because like I said earlier, right? Like men in the film are a danger to Clarice, but the film itself doesn't seem afraid of them. Right. So the men who, um, who the camera really shows us objectifying her, like the, the camera shows us those things. It's part of the landscape that Clarice lives in and is trying to work in, but the camera is like not afraid of those men. Those men are not the scary, threatening men, right? The, the scary, threatening man is, is Hannibal. Um, which again, I think as you say, is interesting because Clarice maybe finds a point of identification in being this kind of outlier, being um, a woman in a man's world, so to speak, as not quite fitting into a gendered role, sort of quote unquote appropriately. Yeah, and it's interesting, to, it's kind of something I'm thinking about as we have this discussion, but it, Clarice and Hannibal both constantly make the men in the film out to be ridiculous. Um rather than the film making the men out to be dangerous or scary the way they do Hannibal Lecter and Buffalo Bill. Um, so you have even Clarice's boss, who's the most stoic and kind of G.I. Joe-like of all the men in the film, his story culminates in the end where he leads an FBI raid onto the wrong house, thinking it's Buffalo Bill's house. So even he who remains stoic and doesn't, you know, we don't see him, his pants don't fall down. He doesn't like slip on micro machines or anything, but he still in the end is, is, uh, foiled. And there's a certain sense where the film, I it feels almost like it's not playing fair in that sense where we have a, a character like Hannibal, whose masculinity is problematized and who's dangerous and scary. And then we have these other men in the film who are hyper-masculine and who we don't like and we're not invited to like, but we're invited maybe to see them as boorish and a little slow compared to the bohemian wits of Clarice Starling and Hannibal Lecter rather than see them as dangerous men toting guns, which in almost every scene they are. Yeah, we know from living in our contemporary world that, like, Police are some of the most, even fancy, highly educated, well-resourced police are some of the most dangerous people. Plainclothes officers, yeah, yeah, they're still police. Yeah, we should caveat, we'll, we'll talk about this more when we get to the little end section where we talk about the, the problematic villain of the film, but we're not um, reading Buffalo Bill. We, we've discussed kind of at length what, what pronouns used for this character, and we have decided that it's 
we're gonna try not to because we kind of when, when we get there we'll, we'll get into the weeds of it but we're like we kind of don't know so the film treats the character as a man in a very simple way a deluded man again I don't want to get into it till we get to that that um that part of the film but we're not kind of simply alighting that like we're we're gonna yeah to to clarify something I said a moment ago if I this was the written word, my sentence would have been unlike the other men in the film, like Hannibal, comma, or Buffalo Bill, uh, rather than to say that Hannibal and Buffalo Bill are the two scary men. They're the scary characters. Yeah, I just want to of any gender. Uh, and that's me talking to you, Zachary. And we've been folks who who may or may not be listening. I mean, you don't know if you're not listening. I uh, don't know that we've been. Um, that's clear between us because we've yes, been talking about it. Something we've discussed at length, and really something we struggled with during the viewing because we were talking amongst ourselves. And I, one of the first things that we said was like, "What pronouns are we comfortable using for Buffalo Bill? What you know? How are we supposed to?" take all this in and uh, we will again save that for the end of the podcast so it doesn't come as an unwelcome detour for anybody who would rather skip over that portion yeah and we we also you know we set it on our list as kind of a starting point for the figure of the cannibal in the popular consciousness um and then watched it and really struggled with if it was even worth kind of recording on it and decided Mm-hmm. That if we were careful about it, it was it would probably probably be okay. Um, let's come back to the figure of of Hannibal and that that conversation. Let's try to talk about um, Hannibal the cannibal as Clarice mm-hmm. uh, describes him. So I think one of the things that for me watching um, watching the film is there's this kind of double play of teasing that happens that. Um, right, literally right now is occurring to me is really similar to a double play that happens in Bones and All in the, the text that this whole kind of mini series of conversations is, um, ultimately thinking about, which is that there's this, uh, every scene with him, right, we have the knowledge that he is a cannibal, we don't, if this is the only text that we've, we've encountered, so if you're just encountering the Silence of the Lambs, you don't know the books, you don't know the earlier films, we don't have a sense of him having, like, ritual around those things, of having, um, like, he's not just running around eating people willy-nilly, the way we see um, Mirren kind of unable to not eat her friend's fingers in bones and all in the early opening opening sequence of that film we don't we don't really know what his mo is um yeah go ahead yeah well and they the, one of the early lines is is one of the i would say one of the cornier lines of the film but it's often quoted where uh, hannibal assures clarice of his cannibalism by recounting the story where he eats his so I think they send someone in to try to psychoanalyze him uh, in the, the past and the story, and he eats his liver with uh, lima beans and a nice Chianti. And it, it really frames his cannibalism as something he's chosen and something that he... You could read into it that he certainly must have control over it if he's able to uh, to relish it that much, no pun intended, but that he's... It's something that he not just not. It's not just like a crime against humanity that he commits, but it's something that he 
takes a lot of pride in, or at least he takes pleasure in uh, confronting others with it. It's not something that he's hiding the way Marin and some of the characters, the cannibal characters in Bones and All are. Um, it's it's very much part of his, his quote-unquote evil, <laughs> as he's presented as evil throughout the film. Yeah, and, and something that's, for me, a slippage is, is I don't know if the film wants us to see his cannibalism as um, because of his sort of liberal, elite, kind of non-American masculinity, that all of those things get wrapped up uh, together um, as, as sort of things that trouble each other or produce each other, or if it's supposed to be that he is, in spite of being this, like, uh, upper echelons, very wealthy, very intelligent, kind of super genius, I say, like, that's a little bit, I'm laughing at myself when I say that, if it's supposed to be that he's a cannibal in spite of these things, but therefore makes them work together. Yeah, almost like it's, like, it's, it's the worst possible scenario. He's not just an evil genius, he's not just a cannibal, He's both. Like, no wonder we have to keep him locked in a in a, a basement dungeon, because you know he might not. He might break out physically as he does later on. He by hiding a pick in like a, a lock pick in his uh, caught in his uh, sleeve, or he might outwit you. Like, there's kind of in a, a. It's alluded to that he may be convinced the prisoner in the cell next to him to suicide if I recall how that plays out yeah so he um yeah let's talk about how this starts because he's he he begins the relationship between Clarice and Hannibal begins and he's kind of bored of her and it's only once she shows a little bit of vulnerability and a little bit of restraint and he recognizes I think that she's being very strategic and that she also is being strategic because she respects his intelligence and doesn't just see him as sort of just another criminal, that he begins to kind of be interested in her as an interlocutor, right, as a, as a person to continue to speak with. And he, in, in the course of the film, inadvertently gives things away about himself, right? This is the, um, he is vulnerable with her in moments when he perhaps doesn't intend to be. Um, which is to say that she gets information about him that she can leverage. Um, she discovers what it is he wants, and she uses that kind of against him in this this chess game of getting him to give her the information she needs to eventually untangle the puzzle of this this serial uh, murderer. And so, what happens when she's leaving? It's so interesting to me. He's in this basement of this prison with no windows. It looks like a dungeon. There's no explanation for why um, there's a dungeon below a prison. Like, this is not like any prison you've ever seen. It's it's this weird fantasy dungeon. It's bizarre. Um, there, no explanation for why it exists. Like, just accept that, okay, these are dangerous men. Um, and the dangerous man next to him seems just to be a pervert like that's kind of the only he's like a babbling pervert and he says to christine uh clarice are we using the c word on this or should i just say the c word oh that's a good question um i'll say the c word yeah he tells christine uh, i'm saying christine making <laughs> c word clarice he says to clarice that he can smell her c word and lector 
presumably heard enough to know that he wants, he really wants to know what this man said to Clarice Starling. Ask Clarice, what did Miggs, is like the other inmate's name, what did Miggs say to you? And when she tells Lecter, because she is upfront about these things, he's very aroused by it. He does kind of like a sniffing and puts his face up to the glass. I think he says something else obscene to Clarice. But ultimately, he holds it against Miggs, and then when Clarice is leaving the dungeon psychiatric ward prison, Miggs, who's just been masturbating, throws his semen onto Clarice's face and hair. And then we find out less than 24 hours later, if I understand the chronology of the film, that Miggs has... Is it he swallowed his tongue, or he's... I think it's that I uh, it's he's he's taken his own life. Yes, that he's in dead. a gruesome way. Yeah, um, and so we got this this further image of Hannibal. Right, we've seen the way he's locked up. We know there's no way that he has done this himself. It's not physically possible, um, but he has gotten in Miggs's head and convinced Miggs to. Um, yeah, to murder himself in, or to take his own life in this in this really awful way. Yeah, which we'll keep we'll keep our discussion of the film to the film Silence of the Lambs. But Hannibal Buffs will see in this foreshadowing of in the the third installment in Hannibal when uh, Hannibal is able to convince Mason Berger, his patient and lover, to cut off his own face with shards from a mirror. So we're we're already getting into the notion that Hannibal kind of gleefully gets inside, specifically other men's heads, as far as we see, uh, and causes them to either kill themselves or mutilate themselves. But it's interesting in that it, to me, that whole action of him driving Migs to suicide in one way or another reinforces two aspects of the dynamic between him and Clarice that we've discussed. One is Hannibal also has this aversion and disgust and lack of need for these extrovert like really sexually aggressive men who Clarice is surrounded by at all times um and also the it hints at the the idea of common enemies shared between Clarice and Hannibal um for instance the the man running the prison that Lecter's held up in is interfering with Clarice Starling's investigation and Hannibal hates him because of the conditions of Hannibal's cell and his life in prison. And uh, we see throughout the film that that particular antagonist meddling uh, is always further, is always serving to either aid Hannibal in ways that it wasn't intended to, or to disrupt Clarice's uh, attempt at catching the killer who's on the loose. So we see that shared enemy aspect uh, with Miggs, who both Clarice and Hannibal dislike. Yeah, I think that's really, that's so interesting, right? That he that he also gets in Clarice's head, but like what happens when he gets in Clarice's head is he helps her solve a crime uh, rather than causes her to harm herself. That there's some, uh, this is why I, I alluded to like a dual tension um, between characters. And one piece of that tension is this, um, a relationship of like mutual respect or of like knowing each other, understanding each other in some way, 
um, this is one that we, once we get to, when we get to bones and all, right, there's the idea that there are these eaters who can smell each other and spot each other from a, di or, I mean, they can smell each other from a distance. They have a, a mutual knowing of the affliction that they share that kind of binds them together in this invisible and complicated way. And I think that Hannibal and Clarice are, um, in their kind of psychological games that they play with one another to get this mutual knowing as well. And, and I'm using the word knowing in, in as a, it's not just, a, it's deeper than a mutual respect, right? It's something beyond that. It's the ability to know what the, the other person's not only next move, but second, third, and fourth move will be, so you can predict with some accuracy what their fifth and sixth will be, kind of like, it's a really deep understanding in the Silence of the Lambs of each other's kind of psyche, um, for sure. One of the things that I, um, this is an aside, but it made me laugh when we were watching it. I was like, why is she an FBI agent? So it's this woman in yeah. a man's world vying for respect from powerful men. That's the that's the structure for myself as, like, a non-binary person in the world. I'm like, hmm, what if we had, like, not that. Um, but this is the world that Clarice lives in. This is the world that the film lives in. Every other female character uh, minus the victims of the, who have a different, the victims of the serial killer obviously play a different, mm -hmm. a very, very different role, but, like, every other female character, you can just tell the directors were like, I think we need a woman in this scene, like, it was, it's... There is another <laughs> female FBI agent who, when it is entirely convenient for the film script and for no other portion of the film, will just be there talking to Clarice... And unlike Hannibal, who always has something interesting to say, most of her dialogue is relegated to, like, what about this? Perfect. You know, like, it's purely expository or filling in placeholder lines so that Clarice can continue to spew exposition. Yeah, and I just, I don't know, when we're watching it, there's a few weeks, and we're recording quite a few weeks out because of, because of some of the trouble I think we had making sure we felt comfortable recording about it. I was like, why is she not, like... A PhD? Like, why is she not also a psychiatrist or, like, the, the most the film will allow her is, uh, is agent? Even when they're going through her resume, she has, like, all these degrees in psychology, and it's kind of like, at some point, you're like, yeah, these all lend themselves to law enforcement, right? Like... Yeah, it's... it's I found it. It's quite funny. yeah. Um, the second piece where I think this will let us talk about kind of the way cannibalism itself is really teased in the film, um, which is, and again, this is, this is similar to Bones and All, is this tension of, like, the proximity of, like, literally the orifice of eating, right? Like, the proximity of the mouth of a known cannibal to other humans, right? Autumn, I think almost, I shouldn't say automatically, but the film really um, creates the proximity of Hannibal's face and mouth to other humans as attention um because that's it's it's kind of like it's his it's his mouth that is where the like i feel weird saying that but yeah. but it's really visually flagged for us a number of times and there's so many so much of the film is close-ups um either of a character speaking or uh the perception shot usually of clarice looking at another person's face and it 
does things to try to, I think, present Hannibal Lecter's face in a way that has a, that kind of menace of his jaws that we don't, like, there's plexiglass in front of him in the prison scenes. He has the face mask on later when he's at the airport in that famous scene. He makes the word hissing sound through his teeth. He does, yeah. Um, even the, yeah, the mask draws attention to his mouth. Um, it's when his face gets close to the glass that we, um, we were very kind of aware of his, of his, his face, which is so interesting because like, as we, uh, Zachary, as you were talking about earlier, right? Like it's not, he is not Migs. He is not a babbling perverted cannibal running around and just eating people willy nilly. That's not, um, that's not the kind of cannibal or cannibal threat that he poses but the film still kind of teases us as if it as if it is often yeah i mean i guess it's sort of that notion's kind of paid off in the the two big action scenes in the film there's the shootout at the end and then there's uh hannibal escapes from his he's being held in like a like a fancy hotel in a cell within a hotel suite um i think that's supposed I to be a hotel I, the law I thought, house? I thought, I don't think it's, I thought it was like a, it's like a, an event hall is what it, he's sure. in the middle a of this ballroom kind yeah, of. Yeah. In this, um, this circular cage thing where he can be observed from all sides. Um, but hasn't, I was like, it's in a panopticon, but it's not quite a panopticon. It's kind of like, he's the one that's always. Uh, he's always, always, always visible. There's nowhere he has privacy, can hide, etc. Yeah, and he his escape from there pays off a lot of the suggestion of what a physical threat he is. Uh, in that he manages to take out several guards and you know, escape using force. Uh, just back to his face briefly, a friend of mine, in, when I mentioned we were considering talking about this on the podcast let me know, and I didn't know this, that, uh, so thank you, Kevin, um, that Anthony Hopkins doesn't blink in any of the scenes as part of the performance, which, um, as tacky as it kind of sounds, as like a, a novelty or an acting kind of affectation, I suppose that that also feels very much a way to draw, keep your attention on his face and on the danger posed by his his face, not just his words, but his teeth as a cannibal. Yeah, absolutely. Is there, there's one scene where we see him, do we see him eat someone? We see him bite someone? He bites that? a guy's, does he bite his nose off? Yeah, one of the... And he's wearing someone's face, so he has gore and, and viscera, like, in his face a lot, but we don't actually see him eat yeah. anyone. The way that he escapes, so as you mentioned earlier he hides a is it just a lock pick he, he hides... steals the pen and then i think over time he whittles away i don't know if it's part of the pen cap or the spring of the pen he's got a metal thing in the cuff of his shirt and yeah. he tricks the two kind of bumbling guards who are responsible for feeding him into like getting into his cell he does it by getting them to handcuff him so they think that he is um, secured, he picks the lock in the handcuffs and attacks them. Um, he 
bites off one of one of their noses. He cuts off the other one's face. This is the like really the the gore. Like that's really. I mean, we see some some women's bodies that are that are badly mutilated, but the film doesn't take pleasure in that violence. The film is very solemn about about the violence done to the women victims. Yes, and then we get kind of um, almost more of like a comic booky, like uh, not a celebration of violence, but certainly a much more theatrical violence when it turns around and it's Hannibal attacking the the police. Yeah, and I think this is, we're almost at a good place to, to transition to kind of our final, our closing section where we break down some of the problematic stuff, which is um, that it's toward the end of the film that it starts to kind of get pretty incoherent, I think, in its political messaging. So for me, the beginning of that is after Hannibal has escaped and the um, law enforcement are in this building and he's the elevator is, is going up and down and this is how they figured out that um, something's up. They need to go and check on him in his cell and see what's up with these other two guards. And they enter the room and he, uh, the one guard, which is actually Hannibal wearing the guard's face, which is a really gutsy premise. Yeah, <laughs> it, it don't think about it too hard. Because he's also surrounded by friends who are like, Murray, are you okay? And none of them seem to notice that it's actually someone else with this man's face on top. Just like his face is like not attached to his skull. Yeah, it's really... It's a bit of a stretch. It's a bit of a... Yeah, but it... The first time you watch it, it's pretty... It, at least uh, for it's me. All it's, very, like, it's all very exhilarating as, as a suspense sequence, for sure, yeah. Yeah, but you enter this space, and he's disemboweled one of the guards and, like, hung him up as this kind of harbinger angel of death, and there's kind of this really cinematic uh, lighting. It's all backlit. Yeah. It's actually quite apocalyptic. It's as, as over-the-top as it is, that's one of my favorite images in the film. I think it's really powerful. Yeah, and then there's, like, an American flag in the background. Yeah. Like this big angel thing, and you're like, what? Yeah. And then the rest of it is him gleefully killing cops, and as they say in wrestling, like, he's he's a heel, but he's playing face. Like, we as an audience, and I wish we, if we had more time, I would get into how much of the film is problematized by this. This film does not want you to hate Hannibal Lecter. Like, we are so fascinated by every little thing he does, every little thing he says, it is like, he's so smart, he's so suave, and then not only that, he's so badass, like, he just beat up all the cops, he's running around in an elevator shaft, it's like, he's, he's like, uh, it's like the Matrix, you know, like, he's an action star, it's, it's very fluid with its morals and scruples when it comes to the way it, uh, treats Hannibal in some of these sequences. I think that's a really nice place to wrap up, like, the discussion of how does cannibalism and the figure of the cannibal, of the cannibal operate in this film, which is he represents the lefty elite in this kind of incoherent, non-appropriate, non-proper masculinity. Ooh, scary, but is it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Even his disguise in the final scene, he has kind of like a blonde wig and a Panama hat and a big collar. And it's very much uh, like, look how flamboyantly he dresses, even when he's in disguise. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's, we're going to 
we're going to pivot to, um, we're going to keep this, this bit brief. I don't think we want to talk about it for too long again, because it's, it's the part of the film that, um, that doesn't hold up, I think is, is, um, the shorthand way to say it. We're going to talk about the figure of Buffalo Bill. If that's something, again, we're going to talk about it as, um, there are ones of, like, acknowledging that it's transphobic and trying to kind of, um, unpack that I think the film I think the filmmakers think there's a couple throwaway lines that I think I really think the filmmakers think is protecting them from from the label of transphobia we're gonna talk about those things um you might not be up for that so if you are not up for that this is a good time to uh to head out so thank you for listening if you've made it this far um and then tune in for Alive next week, where there's far less problematic gender politics to discuss. Yeah, and it's, it's just a very, very, very different story of cannibalism. Extremely different film and story. Yes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, as I said, we have decided to use no pronouns for the character of Buffalo Bill. Um, the film refers to, and this is part of the transphobia, I just want to jump like right into it and, and into the way the film, I think, is protecting itself, thinks it's protecting itself from, from being called transphobic, um, and we'll talk about how that is, where there's kind of some incoherencies, and then I want to talk about kind of turf discourse currently, um, and how it seems to fit, it seems to be the same message um, in sort of turf circles today. So the film describes Buffalo Bill essentially as a man who is delusioned. Um, we decided not to use pronouns for Buffalo Bill because we're like, this film, like, it's not, is a character, is not a real person, but we don't get like a nuanced understanding of what, um, what this character's relationship to their gender is. So, Zachary, do you want to just describe the, um, who the character is, what they're doing, what the threat of the character as a serial killer is? So Buffalo Bill is going across part of America. Again, I believe it's the American Midwest. Uh, luring women away, kidnapping them, starving them so that their skin becomes loose and eventually murdering them, skinning them, leaving death's head moth cocoons in their throats, uh, presumably to be found by someone, but or else just as part of the ritual of uh, Bill's killing. And we over time learned that this is all going towards Bill's obsession with designing what Clarice Starling refers to as a woman's suit that Buffalo Bill will wear for reasons that are never entirely clear, uh, presumably to feel closer to being in the body of a woman. Perhaps Jocelyn, I will invite you to in, in, <laughs> jump in here and try to meet the film halfway as the explanations and allusions to Buffalo Bill's intentions get cloudier and cloudier and they're pretty cloudy to begin with and they just get weirder yeah so i described like we were going to do three things systematically one at a time but i don't think that's super possible so it's a description of the premise of the serial killer this is the information um clarice has clarice is it's kind of it's like implied that part of the reason she's interested in this case is that 
it is a case pertaining to women. Right? Women are the victims being sought out by this serial killer. Um, and as a woman, she has a particular kind of empathy that I think is pretty clear, like, men don't have right like the the men and and this is part of one of the thing that things that for me is a little bit incoherent in the film as well which is like all of the men in the film when they look at her like the camera shows us men looking at her as an object including the men who work for for the FBI so it's kind of gesturing to like any man can be a threat to women in this way but that doesn't really get played out it's almost like there's a way to read it as like this is the safe kind of objectification or like and that's not like something i yeah we're not we're advocating not advocating that. that but but lecter yeah stares at her in all kinds of unsavory ways but it's always distinct from the way the men who don't eat people stare at her which feels strange yeah and the men who don't eat people still cut her up or curve her up with their eyes as, as lecter as the film says. As the film, yeah. like, directly kind of points us to. Um, and so there, that's that's one part of it. It's really unclear. Um, at the end of the film, or re-watching, I was like, is this film fatphobic? Like, it was really... There's a whole thing about the, the victims needing to be, or being chosen for being um, a particular size. That discourse is kind of incoherent. The, some... Uh, disparaging language, like great big, great big, big, big women. Great big fat woman is one is, line. Yeah, and and the other is like size fourteen, which I'm like size fourteen isn't like if we're just thinking about how like si- like just sizing and sizes of people and clothing is like not actually that big. And so there's some incoherence in that for sure. Um, um, part of what gets incoherent really quickly is this question of um the film uses the language of transsexual and i mean we had a conversation about this that was really interesting to me so uh hannibal lecter and and this is the line that i think um aligns the film for me really closely with turfy values today which is that this figure is um, this imagined fearsome thing, which is a total bogeyman intended to, uh, intended to just make trans people seem scary and bad. Um, and the throwaway line that the film kind of offers up as imagining that it, it gets away from that is Hannibal Lecter says, well, he's not a true transsexual, which. It's, he's, the, the line, as I best recall it too, is. You think he's a transsexual, but he's not a real transsexual. No, true. He's, is it the true? Word true? Okay. Yeah. Um, we get an indication that Buffalo Bill has tried to um, receive, and and Clarice responds with, "No, of course not. True transsexuals are very passive people." Which I don't know. I haven't. I all of this to me seems a lot of it defies commentary. Yeah, it was, and it seems just a made-up distinction for the purpose of the film. Um, Plot device. Yeah, and, and Lecter tries to say, you'll notice that Buffalo Bill has tried to receive surgery from the two main clinics and been refused, which, to me, I'm like, I don't know how much more whatever true or real means, like, someone trying to alter their body. To me, I'm like, that 
seems real. Not that I just want the villain of this film to be a trans person, but this is this is part of the messy the messiness and the transphobia of the film, right? Is trying to say, don't worry, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about someone with delusions, um, which feels very much this is the turfy part i want to talk about the turfy part where i'm like this feels exactly like turfness uh turf discourse for people who don't know what that means it's trans excluding originally radical feminists it's people who um would say i am a feminist but trans people don't count or trans women don't count as women or trans people simply don't exist it's a really violent ideology it's one that we are very against in our household just to make kind of our stances our sense is clear, um, and and then we'll talk about the greater kind of political incoherence around the film. So we got this kind of tangly mess of this character who is murdering women to make a suit to appear more like a woman who has sought out gender reassignment surgery and been denied. Um, uh, and yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, yeah, and I think when when Lecter talks about Buffalo Bill being denied the surgery, Lecter's line is something like, it was all, uh, there was too much sign of childhood trauma, something again implying that Buffalo Bill's traumatic past would have negated any chance of them being a legitimate case for such a surgery. And also it kind of implies this binary now where it's like, the moment Buffalo Bill is not a true quote-unquote transsexual, then they must be a psycho killer. Yeah, and I just, I'm like, what? what if we did that for, like, all, like, you can't, like, you're not a cis guy back because of, yeah. I mean, you don't have, or you don't, like, but, like, oh, your childhood trauma disqualifies you from that category, right? Like, it's You can't a, make those decisions yourself. You're too whacked out. Yeah, it's a really kind of violent thing um people who are familiar with turf discourse will already know where i'm going or will have spotted it from the beginning that the film says oh, don't worry this is not true transness it's just which right so for a lot of turfs trans folks don't exist trans folks are only men dressing up as women to harm women um and this film right this is kind of the problematic this is the overarching transphobia of the film which is that um that we need to send in the fbi to protect women from deranged men who are going to harm them somehow tied up messily together with their desire to um to where there's one the closest we got to um to buffalo bill kind of speaking to what that identity is for that character is the the dance kind of performance scene and it's very unclear if it's something like cross-dressing or drag or gender dysphoria which are all different things right not to say that they never meet up or come together or that that the distinctions between those things for every person who experiences them are like really super neat and tidy always but um but they're not the same the the, the film treats it all as just kind of a soup of delusion um essentially that is just itself by itself uh threatening to cis women and, and visually, in that scene in particular, and in other ways throughout the film, treats all of these kind of aesthetic trappings, whether it's it's cross-dressing drag uh, in, a, in a way where it's like, 
inviting the audience to be, look how grotesque this is. Like, look how shocking this behavior is. Like, let's get everything candle lit and dark and shot in extreme close up and let's scare you with this. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think it fits really, um, that's so interesting to think about in, in alignment with your commentary about how, like, the film wants us to revel in Hannibal being this, like, kind of force of, um, of psychological brilliance, but also kind of, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, like the, the violence, which is not... The visceral, like, the daring yeah. do, the escaping the police, the being... He's, the, you know, he's the Joker in, in quite a bit of the film. Yeah. Um, in terms of just looking at villains who were also encouraged, somewhere between the Joker and Darth Vader, in terms of villains who we notoriously root for. Absolutely. And so the film is like, aha, you'd think the cannibal is bad, but we're kind of on his side. And all of this gender queer stuff is just itself violence and badness. And as a gender queer person myself, obviously, um, that sucks. Um, it sucks that a really, like, a film with this really strong cultural staying power. So, um, like I said, I'm a scholar of popular culture, I teach, and I often have students choose to write about this film as a horror film that is still, like, still has that staying power, right? So even in, um, even as, as, uh, even in 2022, almost 2023, right, young people who, um, who are seeing this kind of like as a film in history, sort of, you could say, or history of popular culture, isn't a new film to them, are still, um, are still seeing it as, and, and seeing it often as problematic the same way we do, right? It has a sting power, and yet it's quite, quite transphobic. Um, let's talk about the, the political incoherence of Buffalo Bill. So we have the incoherence of, like, this whole throwaway, don't worry, it's not true transness, which I think we've debunked that that's, that's just kind of, um, psychobabble is how you described it when we were watching the film, intended to, um, kind of keep the film from being criticized in explicitly the way that we're criticizing it. We're not obviously the first people to criticize it that way. Um, but there's other incoherence with, with the figure. Do you want to talk about that, Zachary? With with Buffalo Bill. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I don't know. I'm, uh, I, <laughs> I was ready to talk about the transphobia inherent in that character. Yeah. Do you want to, which I thought we, we covered. Yeah. Go ahead. What, where were you thinking of going with the discussion? Yeah. I was just thinking of, of, cause we really don't see the character. We see the character in just like a few brief little scenes up until the end of yes. the scene. Uh, that culmination scene, and there's all manner of kind of, of of weirdness. So there's this whole kind of hidden in plain sight piece where Buffalo Bill is actually very close to the, um, I think the the house is like in a line of sight from the window of the original. This is where, to me, from a purely plot standpoint, the film gets especially incoherent incoherent, and it, it weirdly um, is around the same time that it gets more and more politically incoherent is yes at some point we we wager that Buffalo 
Bill, one of the victims, must have been in Bill's line of sight from a room where Bill was also had been living at some point and had since moved into another nearby home. Yeah, it's uh, the geography. It's it's the the film is lines of sight and geography and mapping as kind of like the tools of policing are sort of invoked as if this is a very um, logical, rational puzzle that can be mapped really easily. And then the way the film is shot, that doesn't, um, it doesn't kind of fall so neatly and patly into order. That same kind of order that is invoked in, um, what the characters are saying is not visually established the same way. So there's like a visual kind of incoherence. Um, there's a groany kind of eureka moment where uh, Clarice Starling is investigating the home of one of the victims and finds that the victim was an aspiring seamstress and has a half finished dress hanging in her closet and then recognizes that the, the outlines of where the cuts need to be made in the dress are the same as the cuts Buffalo Bill makes in Buffalo Bill's Victims. And then the next thing we see Clarice is frantically on the phone yelling at her boss that he's building a woman's suit because the cuts are the same as a seamstress would make. And it's very unclear if we're supposed to read this as Buffalo Bill was working on these dresses and the victim was who studying from who? who exactly were they studying together was is all of this just a coincidence that his victim their vic Buffalo Bill's victim in turn turned out to be interested in sewing um there's a lot of kind of banal coincidences that are treated with a lot of importance uh and it you could say that also about a lot of the political content of the film in that there's a lot of grandiose statements made that actually don't really hold water. Yeah. The, the particular, I know I've been looking, I've been looking at Zach's like, what do you want? What yeah, is the thing? I, and so uh, the thing that I'm, that I'm holding on to is as for me, kind of blew the political political. I was watching the film. We're trying to untangle it. We're like, what? Like, we know it's like we're we know it's transphobic. We know this is not just like it's not crappy representation because it's not representation of gender queer people. It's a representation of um, this kind of bogeyman of, of of gender queerness that is uh, scary and, and dangerous potentially. Very similar again, as I said, to what uh, the bogeyman that that turfs are seeking to deny real trans people rights over. Right, that's a really important. Uh, important point in our current our current world right now but we're trying to unentangle what is the what is the film trying to say right like let's see what it's trying to say and critique it for what it's doing what it's trying to doing trying to be doing pardon me um and at one point in the final scene we see that buffalo bill has like made a quilt with swastikas on it oh yeah i forgot about that <gasps> and it, i shouldn't like swastikas are off like don't because buffalo bill loves to sew and it's, might be a woman's suit, might be a swastika on a blanket. It's this so bizarre, right? It's like this homeless, like, think of, like, what is quilting? It's like this women's homesteading art about, like, caring for your family and, like, creating beautiful objects. And this is what Buffalo Bill spends their time on, right, is making. Well, Buffalo Bill also has not just guns at Bill's disposal, but... 
uh, night vision goggles. So Buffalo Bill's also in the Proud Boys, you know, <laughs> Nazi militia out in the yeah. middle of nowhere. There's like very anti-American, there's anti-American, um, anti-nationalist uh, posters up in the basement. So it's this, this weird political incoherence that now seems a really interesting foil to that that disemboweled cop guard backlit in this beautiful way against the American flag scene. Um, which is to say it's completely politically incoherent. Yeah, it's it this is the question is like, is anti-establishment violence cool or is it terrifying? Is you know, queer masculinity like do we root for someone like Hannibal or are we repulsed by them? by him yeah um it's funny too and i want to throw this out there that the next year the same director jonathan demi would solve everything as far as queer representation in hollywood because he made philadelphia which we now know is the movie about how as long as you're a rich lawyer white well-behaved man dying of aids your story is sympathetic as long as you're a good gay and not a bad gay there we go. That's the that's the moral. I think we should wrap it up here. This is the be a good gay, not a bad gay. Is the moral. And don't worry, straight men are scary, but they're not the most scary. Seems so to be with the film. We, we should maybe look at just how much of twenty first century mainstream queer politics has been influenced by these two years of Jonathan Demi's filmmaking. Sure, that'll be the next. Yeah, our next e five. Okay, the the real monster. <laughs> the real monsters. The filmmaker. is Hollywood filmmaking. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. Okay, join us next time for a discussion of a very different story of cannibalism. We'll be discussing alive. Um, yeah, thank you for listening for the World Cup. For the World Cup, it's the oh, perfect no, time to it do is it. The perfect time to do it. Uh, amazing. All right, thank you for joining us for CanCon to Canadians providing content around cannibal conversation. Stay hungry. Thank you.